Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that sheds light on a full-spectrum spirituality, integrating the shadow, light aspects of being into ultimately, hopefully, a unified and wise, compassionate experience of being. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad to have you here today. Okay, it's, it's been a busy week. Uh, last weekend, I taught my four-day traditional Chinese medicine yin yoga teacher training module. And as often seems to be happening lately, when I go through these intensives, when I facilitate these intensives, somewhere along the way, due to the conversations I'm having with participants and the questions that are getting raised, my own conceptualization and understanding and kind of dots that get connected in the, within the material uh, seems to always develop or deepen into a new understanding. And that was the case for me in this last training. And in the coming weeks, I imagine I'm going to be trying to codify and organize some of those insights into some writing. And I'll be distributing those reflections through my newsletter now called Letters from the Path, sort of my ongoing letters to anyone that's subscribing about my reflections and musings and experiences on my journey on the spiritual path involving yin yoga, meditation, and Chinese medicine. Um, so if you're interested in that, please do subscribe. Uh, you can go to my website, joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And upon subscribing, you'll get access to some free yin yoga classes that I did as videos, as well as a series of reflections of writing about the yin yoga practice. Okay, so, and then after this training I just gave, um, I, I, on Monday, I recorded and delivered the talk you're about to listen to, which is a talk about the theme of doubt, specifically self-doubt in practice. This is a very pernicious, insidious, and um, subtle, uh, difficult energy. And because it, it's not very obvious as I get into the talk, it sort of manifests and takes form or is, comes into our experience under the guise or disguise of other difficult mind states. But when there is a lot of self-doubt, uh, it, it can really zap one's energy and enthusiasm for the practice. We, we don't feel like we see the benefit or have a sense of where the practice is gro- going and growing. Um, so learning to recognize and work with self-doubt is hugely important. And I try to suggest ways, some compassionate ways of working with your experience to, to really build internal confidence within your own capacity. Um, and then... This has been a very full week for me. Um, two days after this talk, I recorded yesterday a what proved to be over a 90-minute conversation with my my spiritual friend and mentor and kind of guide, uh, Bob Robert Wright. Um, we will, I'll be releasing that conversation on this podcast, and it will also go out on his show. But the nut, nuts and bolts of the conversation, the structure of it is, uh, Bob is increasingly convinced that in order to avert op- apocalyptic doom, the human species needs to upgrade its psychological consciousness in a way f- uh, from uh, dynamics and, and internal biases of the mind that fuel tribalism, and, and, and we see that on evidence everywhere we look in the world, to support uh, kind of conditions that are, are modes of or levels of consciousness that support non-zero-sum solutions, where people 
in a non-zero-sum solution work together, they collaborate to bring about positive outcomes. So, uh, and I am in contact with him about this because I think uh, there's very specific elements of both yin yoga and meditation that can help uh, kind of improve people's cognitive immunity so they're less vulnerable to the pernicious influence of cognitive bias. You're going to be hearing much more about that from me over the coming weeks and months. I've had, a just like in the TCM module where I had some insights, I've been having a lot of insights about the kind of the connections between the neuroanatomy and the biochemistry of process that goes on in yin yoga and meditation and how that uh, sort of sets a, a better internal immunity both to literal pathogens and also to cognitive pathogens. So stay tuned for that. I'm super excited. Before I give you today's talk, I just want to say, um, if you're new, welcome. If you're a new listener, I just want to warmly welcome you to, to listen here, and I hope some of the reflections that I offer in the talk and the, the specific meditative exercises at the end of the talk, it's not a guided meditation, I sort of give you the outline of some meditation process or instruction that I encourage you to try, and you can try that on your own after, the, after listening. But I hope that all of that is of support to your practice. The feedback I got this week from several students over email was that they found this particular talk, even though I felt the talk was a little rough around the edges, and I wasn't the clearest partly because of fatigue and allergies, but the feedback was that, that people were really finding it across the board pretty helpful. So I hope that proves to be the case for you. And if it's not, send me an email, because part of what I'm finding is that this ongoing dialogue between something I riff on and share and then the feedback I get from people trying to apply it to their practice, that's upgrading my own understanding of what's going on and, and helping me clarify better how I communicate um, all of this. So I really appreciate your engagement and support. So if you're just stopping by and new to the podcast, please relax and enjoy and I hope you um, find something of value in some of the reflections I share. Um, to those of you that have been tuning in regularly, welcome back. It's always great to have you here. And I just want to gently suggest that if you're interested in supporting the work of the podcast and the work that Terry and I are doing in our teaching, you can do that um, in some very simple ways, one of which is just to take a class with us. We have uh, uh, four different classes each week. Um, there's a link for that, all of those in the show notes. But each class is a $10 drop-in. So that's a very, hopefully, uh, easy way that if you're interested, you can help support us with a little bit of financial contribution. Um, I also link to the book that I wrote with the late and great Michael Brooks, my, my, my dear friend who passed away last year. Um, that book, The Buddhist Playbook, is a, an e-book with, on, it's an e-book on developing a meditation habit, so sustaining a meditation practice, and it's accompanied with five guided meditations that I recorded. So that bundle is also $10. So those are very easy um, ways that you can support the podcast. There are also some online training courses in yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, meditation, yang yoga. And of course, if you'd like to participate and practice with Terry and me in an ongoing way, you can do that by joining the Sangha. But whatever level you're able to, we, we are very grateful for your support. And if you have given us support, Please know from our hearts, we are very, very grateful and thank you for that. Okay, without further ado, I now bring you today's talk, Flowing from Self-Doubt to Confidence. 
here we are at the beginning of May, the fifth month, and uh, the fifth month of 2021. And um, all year, and going in and out of them in some ways, all year I've been reflecting on the difficult, challenging energies of mind and heart that 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 kind of uh, hook us in meditation and life. And 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 when they, we were hooked by them, um, it's not uncommon that we feel. Uh, that life isn't going well, or that our practice isn't going well, or that there's something not quite right in, in our experience. And so these are called the hindrances. The fifth hindrance, which is the topic of tonight, is, 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 is described as doubt, the doubting mind, when the mind is uh, clouded by doubt. And of all of the hindrances, doubt is probably and often referred to as the subtlest the most insidious. It's the one that travels incognito, dressed up as all the others. <laughs> so um, when there's a lot, like when you have desire, it's very obvious, like you want something specific. You want a different meditation cushion. You want a different meditation practice. You want a different meditation teacher. You want a different uh, meal or a different drink or a different bed or a different pillow. The, you know, the desiring mind um, is kind of a very obvious dynamic. It's not easy dynamic to work with, but it tends to be kind of big and, and, and florid almost. And on the flip side, aversion, the ill will in the mind, the dislike you mind is also kind of obvious at times when it, when it appears. Similarly with restless, when you're kind of crawling out of your skin, restlessness um, is, is very apparent when it's, a, when it's present. And last week, as I reflected on some of the varieties of sleepiness, that too, or the, I should say the, the varieties of sluggishness, like low energy, because there's there's many causes that, that can, can lead to that state of low energy. But when, when low energy is arising, we also are quite aware of it because we're aware of how little we can be aware of what's going on because we keep nodding or falling over in a way. But when doubt arises, uh, you know, it, it can, can ride on the coattails of, of many of these other energies. So we might feel like we're restless or feel like we're, we're um, desiring something else. When really, when we look into it more deeply, we see that there's a dynamic in our heart that, that doubts our ability to do this practice. We can have self-doubt. We can have self, self, a doubt around the teaching, like the practice that we're doing or the path. We can have doubt around our teachers, and, and, and all of those are the th kind of the three traditional categories of doubt that often get discussed. For this evening's talk, I want to focus primarily on self-doubt, um, because I think it's one that many of us, including myself, experience regularly throughout practice. Um, and I want to tie this, the experience of self-doubt to the kind of states of low energy or um, lack of confidence or enthusiasm in practice when it's present. So um, it's, it can sometimes be a manifestation of this low energy that I spoke about last week, where uh, when we really doubt our own capacity to engage and realize the truths of this practice uh, or the insights of this practice, we can feel that we don't have the enthusiasm or the energy, the excitement or the joy or confidence in our, in our practice in life. So it often, doubt often will manifest um, in a variety of different voices. Um, but when you listen for it, it, it might manifest in, in the kind of the phrase, I can't do this, 
So why bother trying? I just can't do this. And, you know, whenever I've spoken to friends about going on meditation retreats in the past, that's one of the most common statements or responses that I get when, when they hear about what a meditation retreat entails, like sitting and walking and really don't, doing not much else throughout the, the whole day, just alternating periods of sitting practice and walking practice in silence for the majority of the day. People think that's, there's no way I could do that. So, so, so there's something about the practice itself that, that often is met with this kind of resistance. That people think this is something that I couldn't do because they have so many ideals around what meditation means to them. And that I can't do voice is um, something that I've experienced, uh, again, on retreats or with working with different teachers. But I think it, I, I saw a cartoon online on YouTube, sort of a, uh, an animated cartoon uh, put out in Ireland, uh, there was a, an Irish comic, I think, uh, draw artist who did a series of, of animated videos uh, uh, celebrating the varieties of the Cork accent. So Cork is in the south of Ireland. It's the southern capital of Ireland, as they say. And, and there's a, even within the county of Cork, there's there's a whole variety of different accents that uh, appear in that in that part of the country. And in this cartoon, there was uh, the it was two donkeys, two two donkeys in a pen, standing before a puddle. And they're kind of a, it seems like they're assessing the puddle for a little while, and then suddenly one of the donkeys says, "I can't do it, I can't do it, I just can't do it." And then the other donkey, who's trying to give him some support and confidence, says. Oh, you can, you can do it. Just one leg over the other one. You'll make it over. Go on, go on. And the first donkey says, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And, you know, it goes on and on. Um, but I think this is similar to what comes up in our meditation at times. You know, the voice that says, I can't do it. This isn't for me. This, this might be a path for somebody else, but it's not something that I'm going to be able to succeed at, to realize the depths of these truths that the practice is pointing to. That there's something often that we feel that is inherently wrong with us and that we're broken or not suited for the practice. Or times we might feel like we're wasting our time or that we're, just, we're not making any progress, like someone reported a few weeks back. Um, now, at one point, I was, I've shared that I've worked with this uh, Burmese teacher who passed away a few years back named Saida Upandita. And in the first several weeks of, of being on retreat with him, every time I would go and uh, report on what was happening in my meditation. Uh, the only feedback I get would get was, uh, at first it was, it was, you need to try harder. So I heard that about a half a dozen times and I kept thinking, how can I try harder? I'm trying as hard as I possibly could. How could he ask me to try harder? So I really started to feel like I, maybe I can't do this practice. And then after being told I wasn't trying hard enough, he told me that I was not making any progress. And that I appeared to be wasting my time at the center. And um, it, it, I have a lot of lightness and levity around that experience now. But I can tell you at the time, having traveled halfway around the world, having set aside several months of my life to be doing intensive retreat, taking all the care of my life affairs so I could make that, make that possible, to be told by the senior teacher in my tradition 
that I was wasting my time and wasting the, the, the meditation center's resources in being on the retreat by not making any progress, I was basically in a, an empty well of utter despair and anguish. You know, and I was just beside myself with doubt and, and, and self-judgment and self-criticism and really struggling. But what I found in that time and I think this is why he was doing it, was that in, in really making me face my own doubt of myself, he wanted to teach me the lesson of relying on myself and trusting my own inner conviction. Because he rode me hard for those first few weeks, and I more or less got to the breaking point where I was going to go into the interview and say, I give up. <laughs> I've tried, as soon as he's going to say, you're not making any progress, and I was going to just, just sort of throw in the towel and say, I, I give up, I, I've given it my best, and I'm sorry I've been wasting the meditation center's resources. I will, um, I will remove myself and make space available for somebody else to do, um, take my, my spot. And at that day, that I was all rehearsed to go hand in my, um, my resignation, um, he suddenly turned and said, oh, you're doing quite well now. <laughs> so, I, you know, I have no idea how he um, could sense this kind of resolve me to, 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 to leave and to sort of honor my own sense of what, what I needed to do. But um, I think some of these really highly realized teachers uh, are able to have the deep perception on, on what's going on just by the way you move, why, the way you walk, the way you bow down. I heard um, I'm reading a book on by a by a woman uh, on writing, and she her book is called The Four Noble Truths of Writing, um, and she tells a story about a, a Zen teacher who could understand the depth of a student's practice just by the way they rang the bell on their way into the interview. <laughs> so, th so these teachers have a pretty strong perception, and I think Upandita was challenging me to really come to trust my own experience with the practice. Because what I found in that hell hole of despair was that I had to, to, to survive it. Because we're talking about, you know, tw almost 20 hours of being awake, practicing nonstop. I had to bring the practice down to its core simplest elements. And I had to take, bring to bear everything I heard from every other teacher to help navigate working through that kind of the, the, the depth of that doubt. And that meant what I was trying to share last week, it meant coming back again and again to the simplicity of just opening and holding what was occurring and returning again and again, just to one step, one step, one breath, one noticing of thought, one noticing of doubt, one breath, one breath, one ache, one doubt, one moment at a time, staying fully present to just what was occurring. And it was the only way in doing that that I was able to get any space and distance on the chaos that was in my mind around how much I was disappointing this celebrated teacher. So I just, I share that so, I, so you know that like, I don't expect... I hope you don't have the same depth of doubt that I had in that, in that kind of experience, but it was an extreme form that taught me a lot about the nature of the mind there. 
Now, last week, uh, after I was speaking about the, uh, the difficult energies and varieties of low energy, um, one of you, Paula, uh, uh, referenced this New York Times article on languishing that Adam Grant wrote. And she sent me a, a link to it. So I, I looked it up and read through it last week. And um, I do think there's a relationship here between what he was saying about languishing and the energy of doubt and kind of the, the depressed, slightly uh, lacking conviction energy, if you will, uh, of, of practice that can happen. Because languishing, is, is, as Adam was writing about, it, he said, languishing is sort of this midpoint kind of dysthymic, not optimal state between thriving and depression. So it doesn't have the same big markers of depression. It definitely doesn't have the joy and enthusiasm of thriving. It's kind of this middling state of, 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 of what the word languishing, of, of just not being fully engaged, kind of feeling like you're drifting along, but you're going through the motions and you're just not alive to the, to the degree you were maybe before the pandemic um, at this point. And, and languishing is a form of, 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 of state of mind that will also bring a kind of um, low energy to our meditation if we're going through it in a way that we don't feel like we have the capacity or the ability to really realize the, the depths of, 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 of compassion and wisdom that are available in this journey. Now, the antidote to languishing, according to Adam Grant, is to experience flow. And as I read about that, and I've, I've thought about flow states in the past and, and, and even collaborated with a sports psychologist at one point on mindfulness and flow, um, I, I, I kind of started to think that, that uh, framing the practice in a way that would support the development of flow might be a nice way to build a sense of confidence in your practice, that you have the, the ability to really uh, develop your capacity for clear seeing, you're developing your capacity for, for, for compassion and, and kindness in relationship to what you're experiencing. And this can be developed in, in, a, in a kind of flowing way. So around flow, um, two, two Two recent and one 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 recent thing and then one distant thing occurred to me. The distant thing was that um, with a sports psychologist about ten years ago, she um, her name was Amy Baltzell and she's a sports psychologist at BU, Boston University, and she asked me to teach a mindfulness intervention uh, for the Boston women's uh, soccer team, Boston University women's soccer team, and. Uh, and she wanted to study the, the kind of the psychological effect that, of the, that the eight-week course had on, on the players on the team. So to, together, we kind of developed a curriculum of mindfulness for the team. It was to be sports-focused. And I would deliver it two or three times a week uh, for about eight weeks. And for the first few weeks, I would go in and try to talk about mindfulness in the way I talk about mindfulness in gen general and talk about the idea of being present to things, not being so reactive, to see things clearly. And when I got to the practice, the, 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 giving the instructions, I gave the basic instructions around bringing your attention to something, letting your attention anchor to something. I used the term anchor back then. And then when your mind wanders to look at what's going on and to let it go and then return your attention back to the anchor, or the breath or whatever you're using. I gave sort of garden variety instructions around mindfulness meditation. And for those first few weeks, 
the students, I mean, granted, it was at the end of their day, but they were they were a, a study of the varieties of sluggish energy in the room. Like they were all kind of falling asleep, nodding over, uh, almost their, their heads were almost hitting the, the desks in the in the in the in the classroom. Um, and I, it was clear to me that in many ways I was failing to connect with them. And, and I and I was taking that on myself. I realized that I was not articulating the practice in any way that was that was coming alive for them. So the next week, when I really came to this realization, I, I went in and, and shared a very simple breath practice that uh, I've seen in, in various uh, traditions and, and um, from various teachers, where you count the breath uh, up to, say, five and then down to one again. So you breathe in, breathe out, count one, breathe in, breathe out, count two, breathe in, breathe out, count three, go up to five, and then you go back down to one. And then you do it the next round, but next round, you only go up to four. So you breathe in, breathe out, count one, up to four, and then back to one. And you do it again, but then you go to three. And so that you go, you take away one rung of the ladder each round. And the idea is that if you can go up and down to, and, and get to one, one again, you've been able to sustain your attention in a kind of concentrated way. Now, that's just a, a kind of a, like a, uh, maybe a preliminary practice or a rudimentary practice just to develop some uh, connection with present moment and, and some stability of concentration um, as it's often offered. But when I offered it to this team, they went from this kind of lack, disinterested group of, of, of people falling asleep to suddenly being very alert. Their spines were lifted, their thumbs were pressing together lightly, and they were, you could tell that they were deeply, intently focused on the breath doing the counting. And from that moment, they had so much fun playing because it became a game for them. And I thought, ah, okay, now I have to teach all the other phases of the meditation practice like a game. But actually, Joseph Goldstein once called Nintendo Dharma, making the practice more like a game. And so um, this is what I'll be trying to do tonight. Like give you, it won't be such a like, a, like a specific game like counting the breath, but I want to encourage you tonight as um, a way to help develop a sense of flow with the experiences of meditation, to, to treat it and to play with your meditation literally in a playful way. That's going to be the key suggestion to bring a quality of play to the dynamic and process that goes on. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, one of the things I've been doing during the pandemic is trying to um, get back to my enthusiasm for playing music. And um, as I've shared at various points in these talks, one of the things that has always was very difficult for me in music was my quote unquote bad musical ear. I just couldn't hear um, relationships between notes. I couldn't hear chords very well. I couldn't hear harmonic landscapes very well. Um, and, and I've been aware now of, of kind of music ear training programs, music ear training apps. Um, I played with them here and there, but during the pandemic, I thought, okay, this is going to be a new practice for me where I'm going to take this on and really try to give a 15 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day at this. And one of the apps I have, what it does is it, it gives you a series of questions where the question is a chord progression, a simple chord progression, where at the end of the progression, they play a note. And that's the question. You have to name what the note is. You have to identify the note on a, on a, on a a keyboard on, on, the, on the screen. So 
essentially what the app is teaching the, the ear trainer to do is to recognize a pitch in relationship to context of other notes. And that's a very valuable skill in music to recognize and be able to recognize a pitch in relationship to other notes. Now, when I started it, after doing, you know, the, 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 the level that I'm at has 50 questions per training session. And so after doing it, like for answering these 50 questions in the beginning, I would be lucky if I got about 50% of them correct. So my, like, I just was getting one out of two correct. And there was a lot of frustration in the beginning, but every time I practiced, the percentage of my score would go up a little bit. And after about five months of working, which is, a, a, I think, pretty slow progress, but after five minutes of, five months of working at it, at this particular level now, I'm scoring above a 90 percentile. I'm getting like 90, 92 percent. Still not perfect, but far better than when I started. And and I'm only dealing, I should say, with the major chord. I mean, major scale. So there's minor scales. There's there's diminished scales in the app. There's there's all sorts of other harmonic complexities down the road. But my point is that in in just seeing the the growth in relationship to consistent practice in with this app and the feedback it gives me, I now have confidence, which I never had in, the, in my entire musical life prior to this. I now have confidence that with consistent training i'll be able to at some point at the time the, the end end point is 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 unclear but at some point i will be able to be fluent enough not perfect but fluent enough in a variety of these different harmonic landscapes in a way that i would never have dreamed of possible before and I, as i've been experiencing this growth I, was, I, was, I keep thinking i wish there was something similar some kind of feedback loop that could build and instill the same kind of confidence in the process of practice for meditators. We don't have the same kind of reinforcement or feedback often. It's, it's a little bit more nebulous. But if I were to design an app similar to the ear training app I'm using for meditation, I would say it's a, it's a kind of inner experience training. That's one way of defining meditation, that we're learning to listen to and identify inner experiences of our being. The more we can, that's sort of one level of the training, but the more we can see into what these experiences are, we set the stage for better relationship to those experiences, more wisdom and compassion brought to bear um, on the difficult energies, particularly that, that, that make our life challenging. So, if I were to, to give you some instructions, which I wanna talk through now a bit, and then we'll practice. If I were to try to frame the meditation instructions similar to the way this ear training app works for me, you know, they, 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 they play a harmonic progression, and then there's a question of what the note is. So if I were to transpose that process to the meditation, I would say it looks something like this. Generally speaking in meditation, we let our attention rest on some point of contact in the present moment. So it could be the sensation of your hands or feeling the contact of your hands on your lap. It could be your breath. It could, we've talked about the nada sound. It could be the, silent, the very soft inner sound of silence in the ear. It could be the field of sounds around us and your field of sounds in your environment. Any of those are, are very good uh, starting points to let the attention rest on. 
And then from that touch point of present momentness, the idea is to be receptive to what arises while you're sitting. So, and I, I, I've known in sessions back, I've referred to that as at times the drifting mind, because in the beginning, that's particularly what we become aware of. We put our attention on something and then after a period of time, we realize we've woken up somewhere else off that initial touch point or point of contact, and we've drifted into another dimension of our mind, exploring something. Now, the drifting often gets you know maligned as a problematic thing because it took us away from the thing we we're trying to focus on. But I'm trying to reframe that relationship for you, that it's in a sense, the meditation is designed, we need to allow the drifting so that we can see more clearly what kinds of things our mind gets up to, what kinds of preoccupations, what kinds of habits of, of thought and, and, and planning and remembering our mind gets up to, so we can start to see these more clearly. So the reference point, if you will, is just a point of reference so we can have, we can have some marker of reference when we realize we've lost it. Like that, that's, that's a really important thing. We, we start here, but we don't, we're not trying to keep the attention here. That would be like like practicing like a like a chicken just sitting on the on the on the nest trying to be still on the, on her eggs. And as Ajahn Chah says, you know, we could be that still, but that wouldn't give us any wisdom. The wisdom is around what we get up to and getting a new, deeper understanding with of compassion with with compassion and and wisdom around what is the nature of the experience that takes us away or carries us away. So what, my, what I'm going to try to propose is that we start with the touch point, the mind drift will drift off, and at some point, and we can't really control when this will happen, but after the drifting, at some point, the mind will wake up to being present again. That's, in a sense, when the, the inner experience of meditation gives you the question of waking up. It's like the note of being awake again. And the question is, what is the relationship between being awake now and what you're aware of in context? So we start with a touch point. The mind will drift. We wake up. And at that point, the practice is to be able to learn skills around seeing the nature of the experience that we woke up from. So if I were to, if I were to model this, I'd say my, I'm resting now feeling the breath or feeling my hands or just listening to sound. One of them, any, any of those or all of them are fine. And suddenly I'm aware of being very self-conscious because I'm not sure if I'm communicating this well. There's doubt. So I, I listen to that. And then what I want to suggest is that you Ask when you when you can get sense the kind of inner experience that you're having. Ask the experience, what is the experience seeking? Or ask yourself, what do you what do you sense that the experience is seeking? Because there's often a drive. When the mind departs, there's a drive and a direction. It's driving you somewhere. And it's it's not all negative either. It's just to get try to get a, a sense of what is being what is the mind driving at right now. So when I sense the, the question around, you know, doubting whether I'm communicating this clearly or not, I sense the drive, I, I sense wanting to be clear. 
So that's the energy. That's what I refer to as the energy of the experience. There's a there's a there's an impulse from the experience of wanting to be clear. And at that point, my recommendation is, as the meditator, I'm just going to say, "I hear you. I hear you. I'm, I can hear that, that. That I can feel and sense and hear that drive." And then once I've heard it, then I'm going to let my awareness come back to the set point, the reset on my hands or my breath. So the whole exercise starts again. Come back to the, the touch point, relax, I'm receptive. I'll pretend I've drifted, I wake up and I'm aware of dryness in my throat. And if I ask, what is this experience seeking? It's, exp it's seeking water, I would like a drink very common biological drive, want water. And I'll say, I hear that drive, I hear you. And I'll come back to my hands. And now I notice some planning in my mind, planning going, I woke up to planning. What does the planning seek? Seek safety. It wants to feel safe. It doesn't, I want to think about a plan, at least this is the way I'm experiencing it, to, to feel like I'm, I'm not going to have, like, descend into chaos in my life, seeking safety. I hear you. I hear you. I hear that drive. So the idea is in, 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 in practicing with this kind of loose structure, and this is just a suggestion. So if it feels weird, I feel, please feel free to adapt it or combine it with other things you've heard me or someone else share. But what this does, I think, is it starts to combine the qualities of clear seeing, of wisdom, the ability to see clearly and look into the state of experience that we're having and recognize the patterns of these states and combine that with the, the compassion of listening to the, the, the drive or the, 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 the energy of seeking within it. Because what what's really happening most of the time is that all our thinking is mobilizing and trying to secure our safety. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that the Dharma teaches us over time that everything we seek our safety in is incapable of providing it. So we have a multitude of drives, subpersonalities or subparts in us that are looking for safety in areas that they're not going to find it. And when we see that, we start to see the like the ongoing process of that. That, in a sense, gives rise to compassion. Like if you think about it, if you had a friend who, I'm trying to think of the example here, but a friend who was always looking for a resolution or a sense of, of, of fulfillment in their life in a relationship. And every relationship they got into went south after the third date, let's say, back in the days of live dating. And 
you can see that, that there's this kind of neediness in the friend looking for fulfillment in something outside of themselves that is never working out. Or sometimes you see it with people with their careers, or some people, sometimes you see it with their hobbies, or sometimes you see it with anything, any kind of thing in the material world. That there's a searching for a sense of security and safety and fulfillment in conditions that are inherently incapable of giving them because they're changing. That's a, the, the deep one of the deepest insights in the dharmic path. When we see it in our own heart, in our own experience, we can, you know it's easy to have compassion for the friend, to see how they're 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 really, they're creating unnecessary suffering from themselves in the kind of clinging to conditions that aren't going to ultimately fill the void in them that's seeking that fulfillment. We're just trying to do the same thing for ourselves, to wake up to all that, as, as my teacher, Jack Engler, would say, the 10,000 ways of self-grasping, grasping at experience for safety. And we have to, in some sense, exhaust all the possibilities of what these mind states, the hindrances are trying to do and see through, not see, not see through them as dismiss them, but see into them with compassion to appreciate what these volitions or drives are pushing us to do. And then to relate to them now, not by getting rid of them or suppressing them or saying, go away, but hearing them with wisdom, hearing them and sensing them with compassion. They desire our well-being, all of the hindrances. They desire our well-being. It's just that they have a very limited strategy for our well-being because of their seeking fulfillment in, in permanent conditions. So this is the basic practice I'm going to suggest, and we'll, we'll engage with it now, of, of, of picking any perch or anchor or contact point of experience in the present moment to just rest your attention on. And then in a very relaxed, gentle way, having a playful expectation that your mind's going to drift. That's like the, the meditation app or the music app giving you a harmonic experience or a, an inner landscape experience to get to know and register and, and identify so you can hear it. When you wake up, that's the point. Okay, now the time is to answer the question. What is this experience? What is this experience seeking? And just spend some time. I don't know how long it will take, but spend some time with it, listening to it. And when you feel like you've heard it, I hear you. Of course, there's going to be a time where you wake up and you're not really sure what was going on. That's the mind state of uncertainty. So when you're not, so this is this is why you can never fail at this practice. So if there's nothing you're aware of, like no experience you're catching, you're just noticing the absence of experience, or there's no experience to notice, and that's what you notice. And just say, "I hear you." No experience, and then come back. Sometimes there's an experience where you're like not quite sure. So there's like. Not quite sure knowing. I hear you. I'm not quite sure. Or sometimes you have to review the experience a few times. I've had that, I've done this many times on retreat or meditation practice where I'll kind of 
wake up somewhere and I'll try to retrace the steps that got me to where I was. It's like trying to recapture a bit of a dream thread. What was what was the organ the sequence of events that unfolded there that brought me to this experience? So I replay it a few times. I'm like, and in replaying the events, I'm like, what is the energy in that? I'm really not quite sure. It feels like it's it's like a, a subtle hankering. It's a subtle discontent. And whatever you sense, that's that's that is sufficient. The, mo- the, the important thing is to be interested and, and curious and listen deeply to what's going on, not necessarily to be able to articulate it or, or, or put a, a label or frame around it. That's helpful if you can, but even just it, the most important thing is just the, 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 the deep, interested looking and listening to what's going on. So um, we will have our sitting now. And um, and I'll be curious to see how this this flow goes. But my and I'll say it when we get to the meditation. Please practice lightly and with fun, with a sense of playful fun, even when things difficult come up. You know, it, 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 the, we're we're not trying to suppress anything. So any and every experience you have is the experience to have when you're meditating with us in this style. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Um, As I said in the intro, the feedback um, has been pretty good on the exercise, and I would uh, very much appreciate hearing from any of you if you apply it and you find that it's either helpful or not helpful. um, One way or another, please let me know what you think. One student actually did write me the day after she tried it and said that she could hear... um, I didn't, I didn't directly reference this, but she said she could hear the influence of the, the psychodynamic practice called internal family systems kind of written all over um, how I was uh, giving the, the meditation instruction. And it's true. I'm very much influenced by uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz's work in internal family systems. My own therapist, Jack Engler, was very interested that of integrating the two or integrating internal family systems with spiritual practice and contemplative practice. So this is my kind of improvised riff on how to, to fluidly integrate the two models of, of content, contemplation and internal family systems work. So let me know what you think about it. Until I see you next time, I hope you stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.